Welcome to the Meb Favor Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hello, podcast listeners. Welcome to a live remote radio hour with Jeff Rinsberg. Jeff, welcome. Hey, what's up, Meb? Not much. I'm calling you from an enclosed room uh, about 10 miles away at uh, St. John's Hospital. Yeah, what's going on over there? Well, just executed my first spinoff unexpectedly about three (laughs) weeks early. Just had uh, my first child. Congratulations. Thank you. It's been very exciting. If I am a little bit dim-witted, on today's podcast is because I've slept maybe two hours in the last two days, you know, and despite having seven nieces and nephews, a little harder when you're on the stinky end of the diaper uh, than when you can just kind of, you know, pass them back. Wait, so wait, wait. it's have, wonderful. Have you ex- traded it or uh, have you changed the diaper yet? Honestly, I like five Stop. and hopefully that's, that's where it ends. But yeah, so uh, everybody's great. I, I wouldn't recommend to the listeners going to a birthday party and drinking some wine and beer before uh, having to go to the hospital at one in the morning. But um, other than that, you know, I mean, we had a a breech baby who was going to have a C-section, had the dates planned, and I really needed that extra 12 days mentally. You know, I was not mentally ready to have a child. So, you know, it's kind of, it's all about expectations. And so uh, then when my wife kind of threw the wrench into the plan and said, I think we need to go to the hospital. I said, babe, just, just go back to sleep. And, uh, 30 minutes later, we, um, we had a new baby boy. So, uh, <laughs> let that be a lesson to, to you, Mab. <laughs> uh, when do you think you'll have a name? Well, yeah, his initials are TBD because, uh, she's scratching off names as we speak, by the way, in the room. So, we're probably about, down to about seven candidates. So hopefully by the time podcast airs. How many, how many of yours are still on the, uh, in the contention? Very few. <laughs> Very few. All right. Well, again, congrats. We'll, uh, we'll move on. You'll have to give us updates later on. Sure. A side note, huge congratulations to you and a big thanks to all of our listeners. Uh, everyone, we are about to pass uh, 1 million downloads of the Meb Favor Show. So we have a, a lot of um, appreciation for everybody who's been listening to us. And Meb, kudos, congrats. Yeah, you know, I think if, if you were to ask both of us um, almost a year ago, what has it been, nine months, and said, hey, do we think this is going to be as much fun or as widely listened to? I was getting some emails this week when we posted our top 10 countries, and, and oddly enough, UAE was like number six. And I kind of posted this. I said, I'm kind of surprised six through 10. We have listeners in China and Sweden and Finland and Norway. We're all big ones. And then I got some emails from people in all those countries. So the good news is it's not just a bunch of bots uh, listening. It's actually people. So it's been a lot of fun. Look, as always, friends, send suggestions, feedback at themebfavorshow.com. We'll probably have a few uh, fun updates coming going forward. You know, the, we'll continue to do the the interviews, which have been a lot of fun. 
We're thinking about adding uh, this format, the Q&A radio style, as a weekly offering. So maybe have one of each each week, but that may be a little too much Meb Faber show. We'll, we'll feel it out. We'll see how it goes uh, in the uh, in the coming months. If you have any ideas, please, uh, please let us know. And also, by the way, please leave a review, you guys. We love reading them. There's been some really funny, interesting ones, uh, and so we, we read them all. So it would mean a lot to us as we kind of hit this milestone if, if y'all leave a review. And with that, uh, unless you get anything else, why don't we dive right into the episode? All right, so that said, um, Meb, why don't you start us off here, you know, in light of the child. Uh, one thing you and I had talked about was the role and the importance of uh, educating children um, on investing. That ties in with, uh, with uh, saving money, and then there's taxes. There's a whole list of sort of domino topics here. Um, why don't you just sort of leap in and sort of tell us what we've been talking about offline, which we wanted to talk about here on the show. Well, there's a lot. So one of our good friends, Jason Zweig, the, the Wall Street Journal correspondent, just had a great article in the journal last weekend, which we'll link to in the show notes, where he was talking about surveys with investors and expected returns. And we've been talking about this for years, where, and it's not just individuals, we've seen surveys with both retail and institutionals, where investors almost across the board expect around 10.5% returns for their investment portfolio. Um, this kind of goes along the themes with what we were talking about earlier with expectations about when to have a child, but also with the investment portfolio, but also just the general theme of education. So if you look back historically, 10.5% returns means, you know, in today's environment with about 2% inflation in the U.S., that's about an 8.5% return real. Real historical return for globally is around 4%. So remember our old five to one rule: stocks five percent, bonds two percent, bills one. Real that's after inflation. So to get eight and a half percent return today, when bonds yield around two and a half, so net of inflation half a percent, that means the rest of your portfolio needs to return like what fourteen, eighteen percent or something. Yeah, uh, if you did a traditional, if you did a traditional sixty forty, right? So it's just very, 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 very unlikely. But it goes back to that theme of education. And so, obviously, we put out a lot of education. We've done five books, a dozen white papers, about 50 podcasts, 1,500 blog articles. But one of the biggest challenges I have and I struggle with, I get a lot of emails from friends and listeners that say, Hey, Mab, my son or daughter is just starting out investing, just got out of college, really wants to learn about investing in the craft. What, what do you recommend? What book do you recommend? Where can they go? And the problem is I don't really have an answer to that. You know, and I don't think most advisors or people do. They say something along the lines of, oh, look, go read the essays of Warren Buffett or maybe read Security Analysis or, you know, these other Charlie Munger. But there's really not a curriculum. There's no Rosetta Stone for investing. So, A, I think that's a business opportunity for somebody if you're listening. We, we actually wrote about this on the blog a while ago. And we also talked about a, a theme of a book, which – I may turn my attention to at some point now that now that I have a child, but but basically it's like how to teach someone to invest, how to teach your child to invest. And so many people do it kind of the wrong way and they go about learning to invest the totally opposite wrong way and teaching people to invest the exact opposite way they probably should. It kind of teaches all the wrong lessons. So I think it's, it's a big need out there. Let, let me interrupt you real quick. I'm curious sort of diving into the details and you can take this as far as you want. What would you say is the right way to learn to invest? And in terms of context, one thing that surprised me when I began to work more with you 
was your focus more on a macro fund level versus the way I had learned to invest, which was more specific stock uh, picking. And you know, you would try to do that based upon the value, same valuations that you typically use, but on a larger scale. So you know, PE, price to book, price to cash flow, things of that nature. But you know, I never hear you talk about valuations of a specific stock. You're always talking about an index or a market or a sector. Here's the comment: is that that's almost how everyone learns to invest is about stocks. You know, is they 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 have a tangible association with Nike or with Facebook, or if you're a millennial that happens to live in LA or use Robinhood app, you bought Snapchat. It was something like 60% of their investors bought Snapchat the day of the IPO. That's how you learn, right? You invest through things you understand, and then you quickly learn lots of lessons. You learn that a stock is not the same as a business, and you could have the world's greatest business and the world's worst stock, and vice versa. You could have the world's worst business, but a really great investment, and you learn all these things about investing and things to do in stocks. But the problem with that, without not understanding the macro environment, is you learn lessons very dependent on your own personal experience, and that can last decades. So think, for example, my mom. I love using her example. She's like our only family member in my extended family that listens to the podcast, so hey, mom. But she, but she taught me a lot about investing, but she grew up in a time, for example, where it was the biggest bull market in equities. And her advice to me, every time we talked about it, she's, she said, Meb, you just buy stocks, you put them away and forget about it. And that's great advice in general, by the way. But her experience is colored because she's owned some of the best performing stocks of all time. She has a cost basis of like one on GE. You know, her, um, she owned Reynolds Tobacco, one of the best performing stocks of all time. You know, you can relate from, from Winston-Salem. And so um, she had a very specific experience. And then, but if you were to ask someone in Japan, you know, or in Brazil or U.S. in the 30s. There's an amazing investment book. It's called something along the lines of uh, the Great Depression, like diaries or something. And it's a guy that found his father's diaries during the Great Depression. And the conclusions that anyone that lived through a depression, and remember, this is an 80% loss in the stock market. Anyone who lived through depression investing has a totally different investing experience, takeaways, outcome, than people that grew up in the 80s bull market and the, and the millennials that have now grown up in, in this bull market. And so, but that's usually the way that people learn. But they, their takeaways are so vastly different from someone who studies market history and understands these different environments and different things that can happen. So it, it's great to have that personal experience, but without the knowledge of what can happen, you know, I think if you were to tell most people, say, hey, look, here's the stats. Two-thirds of stocks underperform indexes and, and educate them why that is and what, what indexing is or what passive investing is and say half, almost half the stocks have a 0% rate of return and then educate them why that is and how 20% of stocks generate all the gains and so why it's, the odds are stacked against you and talk about Burton Malkiel and the random walk. So the whole point is there should almost be this curriculum that touches on all of the various pieces that, that give you the whole. Because the problem with the way that you learned and the way that I learned and the way that many other people learn is you end up learning the lessons by making the mistakes. And that's good. It's because a very, I guarantee it's a very you, costly tuition. <laughs> yeah, I guarantee you I'm not going to be trading option straddles around biotech uh, drug approvals anymore. You know, I've learned that lesson, ate mustard sandwiches for a year. And that was painful. It's good that I learned it. But also it's just because I was an idiot and didn't have 
you know, a little more education around. So I think there's a big opportunity. I don't want to go on too long about this because the way that most people do it is just consume as much information as possible and gravitate towards their style. But I, I think there's a big lost opportunity on getting a really holistic education. Most people essentially get like a, you know, a, a, a degree in, you know, painting or mathematics or something. And so it's this very kind of niche exposure, but without the knowledge of the whole space and history, it's a huge disservice because what happens is something changes on a macro level and, you know, it totally destroys their worldview. So going kind of back to expectations, all these people who are expecting eight and a half percent real returns. So that's 10 and a half percent nominal, you know, they're delusional and this is institutions too. Same survey and institutional. So I think it's a big opportunity. I don't have the answers. Maybe you and I will turn our attention to writing that book or doing it at some point. But yeah, I think it'd be fun. Well, the, the, the challenge with these long term averages is, you know, it can hide so much short term anemic growth. And like your mom, you know, talking about she got used to investing because the time period in which she was uh, putting money into the market, you know, was, was just roaring. So she knew nothing else. But on the flip side, you, you get into uh, the market at the wrong time, you're not going to know, uh, or you're not going to have those same returns, and it's going to really dilute your uh, your perspective on things. So what's the best way to protect yourself then? I mean, we go back to the idea of look at CAPE. I mean, are you still very uh, bullish on the idea of CAPE's the best way to sort of give you an idea of where you are and, and whether well, or not? Well, you, you just, okay, there's a couple of things. So one is that, you know, the, the best way you can educate yourself is to simply read as much as possible. You know, we've talked about that a lot, you know, to understand and take a look around what's going on in the world and understand that bubbles and busts still regularly happen. I mean, if you look at what's going on in Canadian housing market, you know, you start to see uh, similar histories that rhyme, right? Where you go back and read these books like um, Extraordinary Popular Delusions in the Madness of Crowds, or uh, we'll link to a couple others that we've written a bunch on bubbles and busts. But you look at what's going on in Canadian real estate and you see Tony Robbins and Pitbull at a huge real estate investing conference. You know, these are signs that are bubble style signs. But had you not studied, for example, tulip mania and all these other bubbles throughout history, you may not notice that. You may get really excited about Canadian real estate, whatever the, the boom du jour is. And so I don't want to spend too much time on investment philosophy, you know, and what our recommendation is there, because we've talked ad nauseum on how to approach that and the, the Trinity portfolio white paper would be the best single primer for us. You know, all the books are great, should read them. Trinity portfolio is kind of the culmination of our holistic view. But we do have the takeaway that there's a lot of great paths to investing. And I, I this is a mistake that a lot of I think listeners feel often as they'll email me and they say, Hey Meb, you know, convince me on this strategy or fund or why should I be investing in this strategy? They say, no, no, no. Like I'm that is not my intention. I have no interest in convincing you to do anything. If you want to sit in CDs, totally fine. If you want to put all your money into real estate and another half in uh, you know, high dividend aristocrats, hey, great. You want to put all your money in Bitcoin and Ethereum and all these other cryptocurrencies? You know, I could care less. Whatever works for you. you know, most of the research that we publish is simply, look, here's the historical, how this has worked. Here's what we think is reasonable and good ideas. Here's what I do with my money. You know, so that's kind of like the, the way that we approach it. And, and a lot of people will say, no, no, I can never get on board with being a value investor. It just does, goes against my constitution. Whereas other people say, I can't possibly be a trend follower. You know, I'm happy to just sit in government bonds, whatever it may be. 
But most importantly is find out what works for you with the caveat, understand how it's worked historically and, and of course, what the realistic expectations are and how it would have done over the course of the past century, if not longer. All right. So a little more historical context moving forward for people who are looking to learn for the first time. All right. Well, moving on a bit here, you just mentioned how you invest your own money. And that's something that a lot of uh, your blog readers are interested in following. They, you know, they want to see what you're doing specifically. And you just sort of reallocated your, uh, your portfolio recently. You want to talk a little bit about what you did and why? Sure. And again, for disclosure, I find this only really meaningful to myself. You know, I'm not trying to convince anyone here. This is how they should invest. Everyone should invest in their own appropriate way. But I do think it's very important for managers to have, one, skin in the game. Uh, but also to be transparent. So in the skin in the game part, it's something like of the mutual fund managers, often 50% have nothing invested in their fund. Asset allocation managers, it's something like 70% have nothing invested in their fund. So the prospect of trying to say, hey, you should buy our fund and invest with me and not have anything invested is, is just, it strikes me really the wrong way. So that's one. So I invest 100% of my net worth in our funds and strategies. Two, I think it's just really important to be transparent. You know, I think a lot of managers and, and advisors, you want them, you know, they'll, they'll give you advice for X, Y, Z, and they say, what do you do with your money? It's something totally different. So we've, we've been transparent for many years. Um, my basic takeaway is the caveats is that, you know, most of my net worth is exposed as a private company being Cambria, of course, as well as a couple other small private companies. You know, I have farmland, as, you know, as, as, as a real estate sort of investment and some other things like that. But with my entire public investable net worth is invested in Cambria strategies. And so specifically, I have a couple of the Trinity accounts and the average ends up being around Trinity three and a half, I think. So from Trinity one to six, I'm right in the middle, which is a moderate allocation. For those that aren't familiar, it's a global allocation. Uh, it has securities all around the world, US stocks, foreign stocks, bonds, real estate commodities expressed through ETFs. You can find more information at CambriaInvestments.com, but, but that's how I invest all my money. It's on autopilot. It just whirs in the background. It's awesome. I don't even have to think about it. Tax efficient, very low cost. And it has tilts. The best part is it has tilts towards value and momentum and trend. So all of this philosophically fits my personality, works for me. I don't plan really on ever changing that or rebalancing it for you know a decade or two. The caveat is, is that our company re recently launched a fund, but it's along the uh, strategy lines of tail risk. And when, for those listening don't know what tail risk is, you know every distribution, if you think of a bell curve, which is not what the U.S. market is like, but it has two tails, the left tail, which is really bad events, as well as the right tail, which most people forget is the really good events. And we did an article on the blog maybe about a month ago that said the stock market's risky, but it's four times as risky for advisors. And I'll, I'll kind of walk you through the thinking really quick. So I added about a 10% allocation of this new fund to my portfolio. And um, the the strategy is that it buys with about 90% of the fund, it'll buy 10-year U.S. government bonds. And with about 10% of the remaining assets over the course of a year, it invests about 1% each month in puts on the U.S. stock market. So you end up with basically a portfolio of puts on the U.S. stock market. Historically, that is a bad investment. And what I mean by that is, you know, a good investment is something that has positive expected returns. 
And this falls under the category of, you know, we expect it to be roughly break even over time, but, but to be conservative, we say, you know, it could lose five to 10% a year, but viewed under the lens, and, and this is the wrong word to use, but an insurance sort of theme, meaning, you know, it should do well when markets do poorly, and uh, particularly the U.S. equity market. And thinking about when U.S. equities do poorly and thinking about hedging, you know, the best way to hedge an investment, the first way is not to take the risk in the first place. All right. So if like if you have a portfolio 100% in stocks, like I need to hedge this. Easiest way is not to own 100% stocks, maybe own 80, maybe own 60. Okay. Second is that you can diversify that, of course. So you could buy foreign stocks, you could buy real estate, commodities, whatever else. Um, the best historically, the best historical asset class is a hedge that has been bonds. So U.S. government bonds historically have done a great job hedging U.S. stocks. But it's not guaranteed, of course. And then lastly, there's some active strategies like trend following, managed futures have usually done a pretty awesome job of, of hedging these tail events or, or poor events. But puts in particular are one that um, historically have been a cost, but and you can't say they're guaranteed to do well in times of poor. But if you think about the environment right now, why I think this matters a lot right now, one, U.S. stocks are expensive. I think there's no... Uh, disagreement in my mind there, almost any, across any metric you can find. I think U.S. stocks are expensive. I don't think it's as crazy as the late 90s, but they're expensive. I think that you're in a, an environment where there's very low volatility. I think VIX almost closed today below 10, which would be the lowest level in like a decade. doesn't mean it has to revert to 20 or peak at 40, but but historically, that's really low. And lastly is that, you know, we're your eight bull market. Could it go 9, 10? Sure. But it's a long bull market. So I think it's a reasonable time to be implementing this strategy. And second is in this article we talked about, and I'm droning on a little bit long here, but we talked about how advisors, so let's say you're a financial advisor at Wells Fargo or Morgan Stanley, all right, your own portfolio has exposure to stocks. So let's say you do a traditional global portfolio, great. But that's a pretty levered bet to simply the global risk on markets, particularly with stocks. So maybe you diversified it, but you still have a large stock exposure. But you also have exposure through your clients' portfolios, meaning if and when the market goes down, your portfolio goes down, your clients' portfolios go down, which means your revenue goes down. On top of that, if you go through a long bear market like an 08 or 2000, 2003, clients often panic at the worst time at the bottom and may or may not redeem their money, so close their accounts often because in many cases they don't have a choice you know maybe they're defaulting on their house or just need money to survive etc cetera, etc cetera. so you're also levered to that the general economy and lastly you're also levered to your company and so if you work at a morgan or merrill or wells fargo you don't own your own business it says hey actually we need to cut expenses because our revenue just went down 50 percent. so we're going to clean house on all these people and you're actually going to get fired so you have a very uh, multiplied effect of one cost. And what we relate this to in many ways to think about, I think it's interesting, is you know the same way that Southwest Airlines hedges fuel. So they'll hedge it out in the futures market for oil. Or a cereal company may hedge its need for wheat, et cetera, et cetera. So all these other operational companies will hedge their biggest cost. But I don't know, I know very few investors, financial advisors, or financial advice companies, investment companies, that hedge their biggest cost, uh, or, or risk, I should say. Um, but so I thought it was a thoughtful idea. It's not 
something that I've implemented in any of our portfolios because I think it's a personal decision uh, that should be made. And particularly since it's not a good long-term investment you could tuck away for 40 years. You know, it's not. How something, old are you thinking about holding this yourself? You know, I, I think it's a tactical play, and I, I'm totally comfortable holding it right now, and I'm totally happy if it loses five to ten percent a year. You know, and 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 I've expressed my views very clearly over the last three or four years, and it's been the U.S. stock market. U.S. stock market's expensive, but it's going up, so it's in an uptrend. So you know, we've stated many times that's the second best environment for U.S. stocks. Um, we state that. I'm a, people often think I'm bearish then, but I'm not. You know, I mean, we're a trend follower at heart. But more importantly, I'm a huge global stock bull. And we've been talking about Cape valuations all the way back to I don't even know when since we put out global values of books for certain. So I, I think the rest of the world is much cheaper. So I have a large exposure, as do all of our portfolios, to foreign equities. And we've talked about bonds, you know, where most of the sovereign bonds around the world have very low yields. The, the top five bond uh, sovereigns, what is it? U.S., Japan, France, Germany, one more. What, Switzerland maybe? No. Have like a 50 basis point yield. And so we've written a paper on that, on global value investing in bonds. Yada, yada. All these things that kind of come into play. But I think hedging out it's a part of the potential equity risk, particularly with the U.S., is, it, is it, it goes under the category, in my mind, of being a reasonable thing to do. We haven't really talked about this as much, but I'm curious. Uh, you mentioned that uh, this particular fund has you know, 90% or so in 10 year bonds, and then it's the remaining 10% that's in puts. Uh, you know, people have been calling for the, the end of this, you know, huge bull market and, and bonds for years. But to what extent do you feel any sort of vulnerability having 90% of this in bonds right now, um, with, you know, the potential uncertainty of, you know, are bonds in fact coming to the end of this bull run? Well, going going back to the being a student of history, it's it's sort of you don't know. I mean, if you want to focus nominal bond returns, you can do it with roughly you know ninety plus percent accuracy. It's just the yield. So ten years from now, you buy a U.S. government bond, and let's say they're two and a half, you're going to get two and a half nominal. Now the 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 big lever is inflation. So is inflation going to be zero? Is inflation going to be five percent? Inflation going to be two percent? Because that gives you a very different real outcome. But the path, which you're talking about, which is where interest rates go over the next 10 years, who knows? And you need to kind of prepare yourself mentally for both. I could totally see a world where U.S. bond yields go down to half percent or zero. I, I, I don't think that would be a great scenario for the rest of the economy and everything else, but I could foresee that. I could foresee a Japanese-style market where U.S. bonds go nowhere for another decade. And then, I, of course, I could see an environment where U.S. bonds creep up or, or even screech up. So I, I don't have a strongly held view to try to forecast bonds and the yields where they're going. I, I, so I was like, you're covering all your bases there. <laughs> no, I, I'm just saying, I mean, there's things, you know me, there's things I have very strongly held opinions about. There's things I don't. This is one right. of those that I don't. I, I recognize that I have zero ability to forecast bond yields 10 years from now or even a quarter from now. So kind of prepare the portfolios for a situation where it doesn't, you know, so, and so this sort of fund or strategy in my mind is a bond substitute. So you could take part of the bond exposure, use a fund or strategy like this, so you get the bonds already. So you get 90% in 10-year treasuries, but you also get this overlay of a bunch of puts. And one, one more thing that's important, you know, there's a good AQR paper that came out talking about the name of it is pathetic puts. 
and talks about how poor of a job a one-month put strategy does. So it, it's very important in my mind to use roughly a 12-month uh, duration, um, and it lines up much better, and you don't have the time decay. But a, but a second very important input is is to have a money management algorithm to where when volatility is really low, you own more puts. When volatility is very high, you buy less. Because t- traditionally, when volatility is very high, it's when the VIX is up at 30 or 40 or 90, you, you don't want – it's a really probably bad idea to be spending that much on puts because that's usually when everything's hitting the fan and it correlates pretty highly, usually with times are pretty bad already. Yeah, so, it's more bang for your buck. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we think it's a good environment right now. We think it's, it's probably volatility is pretty cheap. doesn't mean the market has to go down, but uh, I think it's under the category of being reasonable. All right. Well, you, so you said you're doing this for yourself. You're not going to uh, force this upon any Cambria clients by putting it in a training portfolio. But for any listeners out there who are feeling a little nervous and are interested in a, uh, a tail risk type protective strategy, how would you, and they're wondering if it's right for them, are there any questions or criteria or anything that you would say that somebody could sort of ask themselves to determine if it's right for them? Yeah, I think most people um, need to get comfortable with a couple of things. They say, well, look, I don't know how this is done historically, and we've done all the modeling in-house. We haven't published a paper on it yet. But if you're doing a 12-month put portfolio where you're spending about 1% a month on options premium, putting the rest in 10-year bonds, you know, we expect that to, you know, we like to be conservative. I think we can get it to the point, depending on the time frame, where it's roughly just break even, which isn't great. But, you know, versus others, the problem with so many of these products out there is they're either hugely complicated, so don't even get me started on all the VIX products, or two, hugely expensive. For some unknown reason, they all charge like 1% a year. And I think that's probably double what they should. But so we look at this. We look at this, and we expect in bad times to do for it to do basically a one to one with the with the U.S. stock market. So if it has an 08 and goes down 30 percent, we would expect this style strategy to go up an equal amount. So up 30 percent. Now it's not guaranteed because it depends on one, not just what prices did, but also the path they took there with the volatility. Um, but we, but I think that's a good bogey. We, we think that you know in the really bad years, really bad months. This is this is a potentially great strategy, but I mean, there's people out there that say, you know what? I'm a cowboy. I'm a I'm a short ball type of guy, which is like one of the all time best sharp ratio strategies because you make like a percent a month shorting volatility, so shorting the puts or or whatnot. But of course, you have a 1987 style month or a really bad bear market, and you you know you get your face ripped off. So there's people out there that get, that are going to listen to this, say, all right, I'm just going to go short Meb's fund. And more power to them. I'm, I'm happy if you guys do that. That's what it was designed for. Uh, you can take both sides. But it um, historically, that's been a graveyard. Option writing. You know, we have some oh, old gosh. posts going back to 2007. I think I just probably gave Jeff some remote anxiety thinking about that. But, you know, it's, it's literally... <laughs> I bought, I bought uh, VXX years ago without knowing enough about it. Thinking yeah. I was going to time volatility. And then, uh, you know, Contango kicked in. And I just got crushed on it. Had to get out of that, losing a hefty amount. Buyer beware. We'll add that chapter to our uh, teacher child to invest book. Let's run to a quote that you uh, recently tweeted about. Uh, do you have it in front of you, or do you want me to read it? I out? don't Something have it. Fr- you- I'm staring at a Purell hand sensitizer in the uh, hospital waiting room, so I do not have anything in front of me. All right. Why don't I read the quote? Then you can give us a little commentary on it. I think one of your questions was, you know, guess who the author is. So 
everybody listening. Um, all right, the quote says, and I would stick by that. This is the time to really emphasize risk. Valuations are clearly high. Dividend yields are low. Earnings growth will probably be less than the long-term average, which is around 5%. It could be as low as 4%, and inflation will take a little bit out of that now. So it's a time for some caution. The index fund is not a panacea. It's participation in a risky business that eliminates the risk of individual stocks, eliminates the risk of picking managers, eliminates the risk of picking the hot sector of the day, and leaves only the risk of the stock market itself. But that risk is not to be disregarded. It's always been high. It always will be. What are your thoughts, Meb? Well, I know who it is because I tweeted it. But the, the funny thing is if you, if, you listen, if you read the first paragraph, that sounds some, like something like a lot of people that are active managers or forecasters would say. So maybe like a Gunlock or Bill Gross, right? Or a strategist like Jeremy Grantham. Then you include the second paragraph. You go, oh, okay, huh. That's interesting because that seems to be angling a little bit towards – indexing as a solution so in the, in the answer of course is john bogle but you know very easily could have said charlie ellis or also howard marks lots of lots of people but it's an interesting takeaway and I, I think a lot about it because we've written about bogle's stock valuation formula which goes back 20 years and is very simple he published it and it works great and the interesting thing is you plug in his formula today and it spits out a low single digit return for the stock market so not negative, so not in a bubble yet, but not great. So in U.S. market right now? U.S. market, right. So yes. it's at a Cape valuation of around 29, 30, you know, so the formula is very simple. It is starting dividend yield plus earnings or, div, uh, earnings or dividend growth. They're basically the same historically, but there's a difference I'll talk to you about in a second. And then lastly, change in valuation. That's it. It's the simplest formula ever. And it correlates very highly with future 10-year returns. And he published this in like the 90s and walked forward. It's worked great. The interesting takeaway is I've always wanted to ask him, and so maybe I will next time we, I, I get to meet him, I say, you know, John, is there a point at which you would say the risks outweigh the benefits of owning stocks? And I, I'm sure his answer would be no with some caveats. But, you know, I say, look, if, if CAPE ratio hits 45 again, like it did in the 90s, or it hits 50 you know, would you say it makes sense to trim stocks or exit completely? And I think his answer would be, look, no, because the lure of market timing is much worse than the kind of prescription where you start mucking around, you'll do it at the wrong time, you'll try to do it all the time. So you should just stick with it. And, and, and that's my guess. But, you know, it, it, that, that doesn't check the, the common sense box for me, because I'd say, John, what about if U.S. stocks hit 70 times? Or 60 times, like China did in, I think, 07. What if they hit 95, like Japan did in the 80s? Would you still say it's a reasonable bet? And I, I feel like that's just a hard question to answer. And, and, and from just a common sense standpoint, say, look, U.S. stocks are trading at 50 PE. I still want to invest in them. I, I just I can't get on board. And that's a you know philosophical difference. You know, well, I, to, to clarify, though, are you talking about allocating new money? Or are you talking about either. letting alone the money that you already have in the market? Either. I think either. I, I think if U.S. stocks hit a, a cape ratio of, of, four, of four, first of all, 30 is like a yellow warning light. We're expecting low single-digit returns. You know, it hits 40. That's like a red light. Anything above that, I, I basically see no reason to own stocks. And the good news is, of course, listeners, we talked about this ad nauseum, but Foreign stocks are much cheaper. The foreign indices are at long-term valuation ratios in the mid-teens. Emerging markets are low-teens. And then the cheapest bucket is around 10. So we've been huge global stock bulls. Using a CAPE approach has 
had awesome returns, beating the, particularly the high expensive countries, 2015, 2016, 2017, 2014 was a big stinker. But the last two and a half years, uh, it's absolutely dominated everything else. Um, but going well, back, are you to, are you falling victim though to your own sort of? Uh, let me let me back up here. I can understand you saying, look, valuations are too high in the Cape. Uh, level perspective to invest new dollars. Let's say you already got money tied up there, and Cape uh, is a twenty-five. All right, well, yeah, that's high. And you, and you just threw out how Japan, you know, seventy, ninety, whatever. But if you decided arbitrarily that twenty-five is too high or fifty is too high, and you pull out, and it does get to the seventy or ninety, then again, you're falling victim to market timing. Why not? Let the market ride; it'd be as expensive as possible, and then, and when it does reverse, you know, it'll yeah. at some point trigger your moving average. So, rather than selling at a fifty, you're going to sell at a forty-eight or whatever it's going to be. But you've you banked all that gain from the cape of twenty-five up to forty-eight versus trying to outthink the market and decide that it has to, you know, have a drawdown because it's simply too overvalued. There's there's a lot in your question. I mean, the, the first is that it presupposes that the the it will work, that you'll be able to time it effectively. And look, I'm a trend follower. And so we've written papers on this, you know, the value and momentum, offense and defense, all these papers that say that, look, value works, trend following works, totally sensible approach is all three. Buy and hold works just great. You just have to sit through 80% drawdowns. Value works great. Trend following works great. And a combination of all three works great too, all for different reasons, right? Um, The biggest risk of, and a lot of other people have published on this, is that as valuations increase, doesn't matter if you use CAPE, you use price to book, price to sales, whatever, the, the chance of you having a much bigger loss increases every kind of stair step you go up. So when CAPE's at 20, your future, you know, whatever, pick the time frame, one to 10 year drawdown is much lower than when CAPE's at 30, which is lower than when CAPE's at 50, right? So when, well, Are you talking about sort of the violence of that initial sort of drawdown? No, after it's, a peak? it's the what is the biggest loss you experience over the next X years. So if you look at, and we can put a chart in the show notes, if you look at CAPE and future 10-year drawdowns in any country around the world, when CAPE's at 10, 20, 40, 50, it gets worse and worse the higher you go, which makes sense, right? The, the more expensive you're paying for something, the bigger the chance of a big fat loss is going forward. Now, we've, we've kind of derailed and hijacked this entire conversation, which was originally starting with Bogle and indexing. And if you plug in his equation, which, by the way, so dividend yield, 25 or sorry, 2% right now, and then you plug in dividend growth, and this is where a lot of people get it wrong, is that you can um, split that into inflation and real dividend growth. And while dividend yield is much lower, so let's call it 2%, you know, historically that's been up around 4 or 5 because of buybacks, it's just simply moved the equation to you've had much higher dividend growth because that's what buybacks do, right? They shrink the amount of shares outstanding. So if you have buybacks occurring, dividend growth as a percentage is higher. So it's somewhat of an equalizing effect. The problem is inflation is a little bit lower. So without any valuation input at all of the three inputs, right? Dividend yield, dividend growth, valuation change, you still have a mid to low single digit return. Include valuation change, and that makes it even worse. So the, 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 and we've done charts on this. I'm happy to include them in the show notes that shows all the various scenarios where, you know, you plug in that CAPE goes up to 45. You say it stays 
you know, back to a, a, a normal mild inflation number of around 21, or it goes all the way back down to five. Here's the possibilities, the spectrums of where the returns might be. The kind of whole takeaway is that you just want to have a probabilistic view or outcome of what the potential um, returns may be and be sensible about it. My whole point with the, the Bogle conversation is I don't think it's a sensible statement to say there's no point at which I would exit stocks based on valuation because at some point it's just it gets it gets insane. It gets crazy. Gotcha. Okay. Well, you were mentioning indexing, and that made my mind sort of leap to the idea of um, more of active versus passive, just sort of switching topics here. You recently did a speech on that uh, UCLA. Any uh, any takeaways for our listeners from that? There's a lot. This is actually really funny. And the first takeaway is Meb should never plan on doing anything on a Monday morning because I had uh, <laughs> I'd gone to breakfast with a friend and I was having coffee. I said, man, I know that I have something to do today, and I can't remember what it is. I said, what, are you doing a podcast with Jeff? I said, no. So you got a meeting? I said, I don't think so. And if I don't put it in my calendar, forget about it. So go to the dentist, Come out, which is another thing you should never do on Monday morning. My, my idea was that Monday morning is already terrible, so I could, couldn't make it any worse by going to the dentist, which is the exact opposite. It just makes it compounds. It makes it even worse. So I was coming out of the dentist, and was actually taking an Uber to the office because I had parked at the office before. And as usual, just kind of scrolling through Twitter and looking at it and see a notification that says, so excited to hear Meb Faber speak on the next panel, uh, you know, coming up at UCLA Anderson School of Business. And I, my, heart, in your own speech. <laughs> my heart just stopped. And I don't, I mean, I used to do stuff like this back in college or high school, be kind of forgetful of, you know, classes or tests or events. But I've been pretty good in my, my adult years. And I was just like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. And so I Google, you know, my own speech, and it's, this is at 1150, and the speech is at 1230. And so I'm, I'm full on panic mode. I'm, I'm pretty casual outfit, have a full beard at this point. So I just reroute the Uber direct to UCLA and um, walk in at 1228. So uh, no one <laughs> the wiser whatsoever and had a great panel. And the topic of the panel was active versus passive investing, which is like my least favorite topic on the planet. And the reason being is that I think everything is active. And if you go back to, and we run active and passive funds, but if you go back to the seventies, when the first index funds were created, Bogle, as well as Wells Fargo and other groups, you know, that had a very specific meaning. It was a rules-based strategy and an invested in market cap weighted index, which means, so like the S&P 500, it buys the 500 biggest companies by market cap, rebalances one, once a year, whatever, that's it. And that's what an index was. Sort of like back in the 70s when you said hedge fund, it meant one very specific thing, which was typically a long, short manager who bet on stocks to go up, bet on stocks to go down, and netted out the effects of the overall market. You know, That's what the original kind of hedge fund strategy was. And then there was the macro funds too, like Soros, but in general it was meant to be uh, good performance irrespective of market direction. So they had very specific meanings. Both of those terms have lost all meaning. So hedge fund, you say hedge fund now, it means could mean anything on the planet. There's like 10,000 different types of hedge funds. Not only that, what were traditionally hedge fund strategies now show up in ETFs and mutual funds and vice versa. And it's just so polluted. Same thing with index fund. And I described it in this conference, and it's, it's so hard for me to even have this discussion because I have one guy who's a religious indexer. 
And most of my index friends fall under that category, right? Like they can't even possibly talk about anything else other than passive indexing. You say anything else and they just like their brain just, just has a total meltdown. Then on the flip side, there was an active guy and I'm, it's very hard to me to talk about cause I'm like, look, everything's active. And I'm like, here's a good example. S and P 500, totally active index. I mean, I was like, it has a committee for God's sake that gets to decide what stocks go in, but everyone thinks in an index on top of that. We just quick digression. You know, we did a post um, on Twitter and on the blog this week talking about fees. And you can get the S&P 500 as an ETF for like five basis points. So 0.05%. There are mutual funds out there that still charge over percent. We even found a RightX fund for the S&P 500 index. So not just some value growth guy who's trying to beat the market. It literally is tracking the S&P 500. It charges you 2.3% per year. Which I'm surprising this hasn't generated a bunch of class action lawsuits. I'm sure it will. But it's basically people that have either been sold them who don't know better. They've been in some 401k that's just dog crap 401k or they've inherited them and just don't know better. I hope that's what's true. Because if you're paying one or one and a half or two percent for an SP 500 fund, if your advisor got you in it, it's an immediate fire and, and probably should be a lawsuit because you're paying many, many multiples of what what you can get out, out there for free. Anyway, not my point. My point being is that like an index fund, the, the term is totally lost meaning. And let me give you an example. You can buy, I could design an index called the cheeseburger index. And we've talked about this, whether CEO eats hamburgers or cheeseburgers. So if he eats hamburgers, he's out. If he eats cheeseburgers, he's in, the stock's in. Then you weight the stocks in the universe by how many cheeseburgers that CEO eats per year. That's your index. Rebalances once a year. We're going to charge you 2% a year. That's an index fund. Is it a good investment? No, it's a horrible investment. Actually, it might be a good investment. I have no idea. Never tested it. But charge 2% a year for nothing. Horrible idea. On the flip side, you can have an active fund that could also be rules-based, by the way, that charges 10 basis points per year. And there are ETFs that actually do that. So the term is lost all meaning. But, but what we say in general is the only thing that matters is total return, after all fees and taxes. And one of do the- you delineate, just, just curious, if you think everything is active, do you delineate any difference between what's considered an index fund, which even though you might consider it active, uh, the rules are uh, less intrusive or less vigorous or whatever, versus how most people would define more of an actively managed fund with a manager who's just getting in there and has either far more robust rules or is relying on his own instinct. Like how do you divide them? If you do, if you believe everything is all active, I I think you're seeing people divide them currently with their dollars and all the flows go into rules based portfolios. Um, And the reason being is they at least know what they're going to get. So whether it's an index or an active guy, but whether it's a kind of objective rules based transparent approach, and that could be an active approach. It doesn't really matter. We say, hey, look, here's what we do. Here's what this would have looked like historically. Here's the general rule. So you have an idea of what you're going to get. If you go buy an active fund, this traditional guy, hey, I'm going to buy 50 stocks and trade in and out of them and change my exposure based on what the market's going to do, which is a traditional hedge fund sort of world, how do you plan for that going forward? It's really hard, right? You were simply betting on the manager and, that, and his ability, and that's it. And that's totally reasonable. I mean, that, I'm not saying that doesn't work. I feel like most advisors have found that that's a lot harder than allocating to something that's rules-based. So I, I, I think it's just a, and you've seen a lot of the flows come out of the traditional active area, but the biggest takeaway that one of the few things people control 
is fees. And so most of the research shows this, that in general, the less you pay for a strategy or a manager, the better. It doesn't mean that people who are charging 1% aren't worth it. The Renaissance is the world that charge 4%, totally worth it. But it's just a much higher bar the more you charge. Well, you're talking about fees and you're tying it to the article or the blog post we put out last week. Uh, what you're not mentioning, which is interesting to me, we're sort of dancing around the issue right now, is the idea of whether or not your manager, your fund, is giving you, in fact, what you think you're buying. You're talking about active share. Maybe for people who haven't read the blog post, why don't you remind them sort of that half of the equation? Yeah, fees is one thing, what you're paying, but then what you're getting, that's a whole different equation. Yeah, we just did a blog post this week that you, you helped out on that was called Paying for Filet and Getting Baloney, which, which was talking about this co- concept of closet indexing, which is... And, and the Bill Miller podcast with Barry Ritholtz, which is a great one, everyone here should listen to it, where he's talking about active and passive investing. And he says, look, 70%, most of the world is still active, particularly in equities. Indexing may be only a third. But most of the world, most of these active managers are basically index funds. They basically look exactly like the S&P 500 because the bets they make aren't big enough to make a difference. And so what we talk about is if you're going to allocate to an active manager, the bets need to be pretty concentrated and different for it to even make a remote difference. And most people, there's a lot of reasons why most funds don't do that. There's a ton of career risk, you know, so they don't want to look too different. They have mandates, scalability issues, whatever, but you don't want to allocate to those funds because you can buy those index funds, the SP 500, for example, for five basis points, right? Almost free. So to buy something that looks for all intents and purposes exactly like the S and P is a total waste of time. If you're going to go different, so whether that's factor investing, say you're going to buy a value fund or an active manager or whatever it may be, at least give yourself a shot. So buy a fund that's very concentrated and looks very different. There's a lot of resources uh, we'll post to the show notes. Our good buddy, Wes Gray at Alpha Architect has an awesome uh, website software where you can type in a fund and it'll show you the, the percent active share, meaning... Like there's a lot of funds out there that say, hey, we're smart beta, we charge 50 basis points, which sounds reasonable, but then you type it in and they basically own the same thing as the S&P 500. So you're not really paying 50 basis points, you're paying like 2.5% for the active bets because the active bets are so small. Um, and I actually think it's a really good idea. I think someone should do this. Maybe we'll go about it. I would love to see someone go through for all the main big factors and say, you know what, if I want to express momentum, and I go and put in all the momentum funds into Wes's module, what's the one that is the most momentum-y momentum fund? Or what's the biggest value-value fund? And and kind of plot it out and say, here's this spectrum. I think that'd be a really interesting, useful tool for advisors. Uh, but because a lot of people, they, they buy a fund and say, oh, this sounds, hey, this is a low-vol value fund. You're like, all right, that sounds like what I'm buying. But then you get under the hood, and there's 10 different types of these funds, and they look very, very different. So we talk about this, and the even worse example is the S&P funds, which aren't even closet indexers. Those are just out in front of your face saying, hey, we're charging you 2% for the S&P. That's the worst defender. Then the closet indexers are, work, are the next level down. Not as bad, but still bad because you're paying way too much and not getting anything. So there's a lot of a lot of tools you can use to look at that, uh, and we'll, we'll post them all in the show notes. So the takeaway is you want to find something that's truly different. But I got to wonder, you know, most retail investors, well, that sounds good theoretically. I mean, when the rubber hits the road, 
looking different is terrifying. I mean, I've seen you write on this where, you know, we are such, you know, the herding mentality. If we're that different, if we're lagging the market, we're lagging our neighbors when, you know, hell, the last, you know, eight years, if we were that different, I mean, how long are you going to stick with that strategy? It's it's hard. I cannot tell you how many times I get emails and, and this isn't just retail, by the way, this is almost every institution and advisors as well. They'll say, hey, Matt, I'm interested in fund XYZ, but I noticed it's underperformed the last, and it could be a year, three years, three months. I've literally had people, I've noticed this fund's underperformed the last three months. Can you tell me why? You know, or, or why, why should I buy this fund if it's underperforming? I, I often write back, and because it's a hard question to answer, and I say, would you be more or less interested if it was outperforming? Because... What you should really care about is process and long-term cycles of performance outperform. Any, any factor, active fund, asset class, anything can go not just months and years, but multiple years, even a decade of underperformance. And I often say I'm more interested in a fund or a factor or strategy. We talked about emerging markets a lot the last couple of years. Um, we've talked about our famous you know, ones that we talked about uh, last two Christmases, the down five and six years in a row, coal and uranium, which that monster runs since. But I say, I'm most interested in things that have done really poorly. So most people, what they do, uh, intentional or not, they'll look at a fund, they'll compare it to a benchmark. If it's outperforming, they get more excited versus if it's underperforming. And there's some caveats to this, of course. There's a lot of strategies out there that, which will always underperform or just not reasonable. Cheeseburger, cheeseburger index is one. But there's strategies that are reasonable, time-tested, that make sense, check all the boxes, low-cost, transparent, that you are better suited investing during drawdowns or when times are going poorly. So the vast majority of people, that's not the way their brain thinks. And all of the studies that look at investor flows demonstrate this. You know, And in general, and, and the index investors are better, but the active investors, guys, are even worse. But they chase performance. I mean, if you look at a lot of the most famous mutual fund managers of the past decade, the Bruce Berkowitzes at Fairholm, uh, Ken Hebner's at CMG, uh, G, uh, CMG funds that have had these great re- returns in periods. The money washes in when times are good and washes out when times are bad. And it's so stupid and it's so detrimental to return. So if you're an advisor and investor thinking, thinking about this, you're probably ans- asking the wrong question or you're asking it looking for the wrong answer, which is, has this fund done well over the short period? Should I be investing in it when it's beaten the market by whatever percent? You should probably be asking, looking for the opposite. When I was in my early 20s, I opened up a Roth IRA and uh, I didn't know anything about investing at that time or very little. And when looking, uh, when it was time to you know allocate new dollars each year, when looking at historical returns, the funds I did exactly what you're describing. I would basically look, all right, well, what did, uh, you know, what did the U.S. REIT fund do last year? What did this sort of global fund do? And I'd basically pick the highest ones thinking, all right, well, that's, that's what I can expect going forward. And you know, nowadays, you, you look at that and you realize that more times than not, it seems like you're picking something that's you know, had its best days behind it, and yet you're getting into it now on the wrong time. It's just uh, a great way to lose money or to underperform, well, not human, lose money necessarily. You know, look, I mean, it's natural. Humans have evolved to extrapolate trends. And the best quote I have ever seen on this is Arnott's in our podcast. He said, humans didn't evolve to run towards the tiger. 
You know, so <laughs> thinking about risk and thinking about trends where you extrapolate where, hey, look, this fund has been great. You extrapolate it in the future. And my favorite example of this recently is I did a post on Twitter where I looked at the five nominees for mutual fund manager of the decade of the 2000s where they just destroyed the S&P 500. All five have underperformed the S&P 500 since. And, and that's what I would expect, you know. And so it, it's not just managers, it's styles and approaches and asset classes. So one idea that I love that we've actually never talked about, are you familiar with the coffee can portfolio? Yep. It's a lot of these lazy portfolios, but where people buy something and put it away forever, essentially. And I was thinking the other day, I said, you know what interesting strategy could tie into maybe our, our book project one of these days? It's simply the idea of you buy an investment per, on your por- personal portfolio for people that are kind of averaging in over the years, and you're going to make, let's make it up, one or two investments per year, and that's it. But you buy it with the express purpose of never selling it. Meaning this goes in your portfolio and it's there. So people would be a lot more thoughtful and say maybe you get two entries per year, Jan 1 and June 1. And you get to buy one investment with this entire chunk and that's it. And it sits there. So I think people would be a lot more thoughtful about you know, ways to allocate. And I spend a lot of time thinking about behavioral ways to set up portfolios and funds for people to avoid the behavioral issues. I mean, and I think a wonderful idea would be something like, you know, we talked about this with Edelman a few weeks ago where most people say they're long-term investors, right? They say, my goal is 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, save for retirement, save for my kids, grandkids, uh, you know, college. And then they behave on the week to the quarterly time frame. I would love to see some sort of fund that says something along the line of, look, we're going to charge you 0%, sort of like what our Trinity portfolios do. We're going to charge you 0% or very low cost or whatever. And we're going to lock you up for 10 years. Or 20 or 30. Like, those will be the choices. It'll be 10 years, 20, 30, 50, whatever. And the good news is you get very low cost, but you can't exit. And I'm sure there's some way to figure this out. You say, maybe maybe you can exit if you die. <laughs> you know, legally, you probably have to transfer it then. But, but otherwise, if you exit, maybe there's like a penalty. Like, it's like a 1% penalty or something. Or maybe it's a descending penalty on how long you've held it. That's not a bad idea. Like, you're, all right, you're investing in the 30-year forever fund. We're going to charge you 0%. But... If you liquidate year one, it's a 10% penalty. You liquidate year five, it's 5%, all the way down to maybe like year 10 or something. Anyway. The, the coffee can idea is interesting to me in, in the sense that I feel like the valuation metrics or your valuation screening would be would be very different. Um, specifically for me, when I think about buying a stock right now, my mind automatically gravitates towards just what's the current valuation. You know, Am I more than likely to... Uh, make money or or beat whatever the benchmark is based on the current valuation or not. But if you're looking to buy something 20, 30, 40, 50 years as a hold period, then actually tying back into what Edelman said, it seems like we are, it's, it's a different set of criteria right now. Rather than just looking at valuation, you have to look at the longevity of the business itself. And it's less about the stock, it's more about what's the overall, what's the company doing? You know, it's not just is it a fairly priced investment at the moment it's are you buying the type of company that's going to be around 20 30 40 years you're not buying the uh, buggy whips or whatever it's going to be the um, the kodaks of the world that's a different challenge right there especially well, given but, but the, gonna, the, the the pace of growth right now there's a little bit of survivor bias here right so imagine if we go back 50 years you probably would say look kodak is the world's best technology company this is going to be around forever obviously 
you know, where, you know, you say IBM or Enron or, you know, whatever may be around forever, obviously, but. But that's my point. That's the challenge. The one benefit this does give you, it eliminates the behavioral bias that so many people have, which is that they sell too quickly. So almost everyone has a really hard, like if you look at a chart of Amazon or Apple, no one's held that all the way through because they have these multiple 50 plus percent drawdowns over and over again on path to having many multiple thousand percent returns. But in this sort of idea concept, it would it would guarantee you own those. So indexing, of course, is one way to guarantee you own the winners. You obviously own all the losers too, but and, and most people never sell um, on the downside. So thinking about this is at least it corrects one of those, which is selling too soon. So I, I think it's a fun experiment. I don't know how practical it is. You know, I, I don't think most people have the fortitude to build a portfolio like that, certainly. But I think if you could build a structure. Maybe this is another idea. So there's two, two ideas we have. We have the forever fund, and then we have the kind of coffee can portfolio that allows you to buy in but never to sell. Uh, I, I don't know if those, either of those are commercially viable. Maybe And maybe this is the fact I haven't slept in three days. We come out with these brainstorming, these really terrible ideas on, on day three of no sleep. Um, but, uh, but, but I spend a lot of time thinking about that, how to keep people from being their own worst enemies. Haven't come up with any Great solutions. Ritholtz crew does that uh, with, with Josh and Barry, where they reduce the management fee based on client retention. Basically, how long you've stuck around, they'll reduce your fee. We've kind of backed ourselves into a corner because we charge no management fee, <laughs> so we can't go negative. Let's have them pay us. Exactly. Yeah, right. Maybe <laughs> we'll pay you to be a client. Um, anyway, so all good ideas. Uh, how are we doing on time, Jeff? We getting pretty far along. We got time for any, any more last thoughts? Well, you tell me. We're, we're at a minute four. Uh, you know, apparently you just had a child. I assume you want to go be a father. We can tackle one more topic, or we can call it for the sure, day. Sure, let's do one more. This will get me out of at least one more diaper. <laughs> All right. All right. So something that's pretty interesting you shot me uh, was an article about investing in Europe. It's, it's called Investing in Europe, Where's the Return? And in essence, it talks about uh, just a, a lost decade for European investments, how uh, U.S. markets have was it beaten by a hundred percent over the time period given? And historically, you know, when this happens, there's outperformance from the European markets uh, going forward. So that's a very, you know, quick overview. Maybe you want to give some more color and what your thoughts are. Yeah, here? this is really simple. And we've talked about this before, but you know, U.S. versus foreign historically has been a coin flip, fifty-fifty in a given year. U.S. is one of the best performing markets in the world, going back to 1900, but that's an outlier, and that's what you expect out of outliers. It wasn't the best. Um, I think South Africa was the best performing country and it wasn't the worst. You know, Austria was the worst developed country, but, or developed and emerging, but you also had the real worst ac- outcomes like China and Russia closing their capital markets altogether and you losing 100%. So, but historically, US versus foreign is a coin flip. So, we talk about this in the Trinity Portfolio White Paper, but if you, but they go through cycles. So, every once in a while, you, emerging markets will beat everything else, and sometimes foreign developed will beat everything else, and there's other times the U.S. is the worst performer. The U.S. is the best performing stock market in the world since the bottom in 2009. I'm not sure if that's still the case over the past year, because foreign has really started ripping, but it was the case last summer, and that's it almost never happens. And so the U.S. now, then that's the way that it works. When something is the best performer, the valuations go up, and the U.S. is now one of the most expensive stock markets in the world. I think we have the third most expensive, but the good news is the rest of the world is really cheap. So I think in the article, Professor Bob Schiller, inventor of the Cape Ratio, or at least popularized popularized it, you know, was on TV and talking about this. And it's so funny because he's so sensible. Everything he says makes sense and is good advice. 
Because he's like, look, you know, the U.S. is expensive. Doesn't mean it's going to crash. Europe's a lot cheaper. You know, it's reasonable to diversify globally, but it's not guaranteed. He speaks like someone who knows what they're talking about, but it makes, and I apologize to you ahead of time, Professor, it makes for poor TV. You know, what CNBC wants is someone to say, no, I guarantee you, you know, that Europe is going to go up 20% a year and the U.S. has to crash. And we're looking for a recession in Q2 and we're looking for the market as it hits 23.65 to turn over and yada, yada, right? The certainty and extreme positioning, but that's really not the best way to invest, of course. So, you know, that's the way we believe it. We've been saying this for a long time. It's finally good to see the world line up with our beliefs. And it hasn't always been the case. Um, but you've really seen this shift since last summer, which is foreign starting to gain momentum away from the U.S. So all these foreign markets starting to outperform and all of them now being in an uptrend. And we talked about in the Sugar Root podcast, my favorite scenario is a cheap market in an uptrend. And you're seeing it almost across the board in a lot of these cheap countries. You know, the cheapest we have in the, in the world, although it's a very small country and there's no ETF that tracks it. Czech Republic, for example, but but other a lot of Europe, Eastern Europe, emerging Europe, super cheap, and you know Russia and Brazil have had big runs, but also still in the very cheap category. So a lot of opportunity in the world, and we do disagree with Bogle on this, you know, and think that investors, the minimum, should have in the U.S. should have half their asset, half their equities in foreign. Uh, but I could make an argument easily for seventy to one hundred percent in foreign um, instead of the U.S. Well, this actually reminds me of uh, what Arnott said about over-rebalancing. And given given the potential tailwinds lining up for a lot of these uh, global markets, to what extent would you not just make sure you're suitably allocated there, but you're actually over-allocated or over-rebalanced? Yeah, that's what, you know, I, I think that I, I someone could come to me and say, hey, Meb, look, I actually am going to put 70% in global equities with a value tilt. And only 30 in the U.S., I'd say that's totally reasonable. If somebody came to me and said, Matt, I'm going to put 100% in foreign equities and none in the U.S., I, I would not, like, throw down my phone and say that's a really dumb thing. I, I think that's a totally reasonable approach. I think the you can op- reserve your phone throwing down for people who want to put 100% into Snapchat now? I think the opposite – don't even get me started on that. I, I think the opposite, <laughs> however, is horrible advice. I think putting 100% in U.S. equities is a, th- a phone throwdown. Because they're expensive, and despite being, you know, the the world's biggest economy, should only be about half of the global allocation. So the starting point from any of your decisions is half, and then you can move from there based on whatever, you know, financial astrology you believe in. But but that is the starting point, and I think making an active bet, which is what most people do, and put seventy percent in the U.S., same as they do in every country, is a really dumb idea. The the, the converse, I don't think, is is a terrible idea though. All right, so listeners, make sure you're not uh, too heavily invested in the U.S. All right, Matt, let's call it a day. You have a child to go visit. Uh, you want to take us out? Yeah, here? everyone pray for me. Hopefully I get some sleep tonight. Uh, but it's been a lot of fun. Look, seriously, Jeff and I want to say a huge thank you. We love getting the emails from you guys. The feedback is awesome. We read everyone. We respond to all of them. We try to incorporate them into the questions. In this journey to a million downloads has been uh, really a blast. So thank you all for listening. It's it's meant a lot to us, and uh, it it makes sitting in a hospital waiting room for an hour even uh, more fun. So thanks for taking the time today. Look, guys, please send us feedback. We mentioned a lot, but feedback at the com. As a reminder. Uh, we'll post these show notes and other episodes at mebfavor.com forward slash podcast. 
You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Overcast, Castro, any of the apps. If you're enjoying the podcast, please, please leave a review. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.